listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. After World War II, unions pushed negotiations to include employer-funded pension and welfare funds, which both management and labor found beneficial as they are not taxable to employees while being a tax deduction for employers. Employers agreed to contribute a certain amount of money on behalf of their workers to be used for the benefit of their workers to fund union members' pensions medical and dental care, and legal services. Soon such funds accumulate hundreds of millions of dollars. This caused labor racketeers to see them as targets for embezzlement, fraudulent loans, kickbacks, and other manipulation. Senator Paul Douglas was the chairman of the Senate Committee on Labor in the mid-1950s. They uncovered widespread corruption fraud, and abuse, especially in the Teamster Central State Pension and Welfare Fund. In 1959, Congress passed the Welfare and Pension Plan Disclosure Act, also known as WPPDA, which required pensions and welfare plans to report certain fund information to the Department of Labor. In 1962, Congress strengthened the WPPDA by adding criminal charges to punish fund administrators and trustees who took kickbacks from vendors of goods and services. In 1974, Congress passed the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, also known as ERISA, E-R-I-S-A, to fight continuing mob exploitation of union benefit funds. ERISA's criminal provision dealt with, one, theft or embezzlement from employee benefit plans, 2. False statements or concealment of facts in relationship to documents required by ERISA. 3. Offers, acceptances, or solicitations to influence operations of employee benefit funds. Providing federal prosecutors with a way to charge labor racketeers with criminal offenses. In 1959, Congress passed the Labor Management Reporting Act, LMRDA also known as the Lundrum-Griffin Act. The law bans persons with criminal records from holding union office. It also gave union members basic democratic rights within their labor organizations. Union officers stand in the role of fiduciaries, required unions to file various financial and organizational reports with the Department of Labor. The enforcement 
is more civil rather than criminal, with the Department of Labor delegated enforcement to the Office of Labor Management Standards, also known as OLMS. OLMS can investigate and take enforcement actions on its own. Aggrieved union members can bring their complaints to OLMS or, in some cases, to the National Labor Relations Board or directly to a federal court. The Act provides for a few criminal charges, including wide-ranging prohibition on the use of violence to deny or interfere with the democratic rights the law guarantees, embezzling from a labor union, making loans to union officers, or paying fines for union officers, falsifying and filing union reports with the Department of Labor. It was argued that federal law enforcement agencies and courts did not have adequate powers to defeat organized crime, so Congress passed the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, RICO, which made it a federal crime to use dirty money to acquire an interest in or to seize an interest in or to conduct the affairs of an enterprise, including labor unions, by means of a pattern of racketeering activity. RICO crime is punishable by up to a 20-year prison sentence plus an additional 20 years for conspiracy to violate RICO. In addition, a defendant can also be convicted and sentenced for the predicate offenses that establishes a pattern of racketeering activity. RICO was not used much in the first decade of its existence because it was complex and new, but by the late 1970s it had become the statute of choice in organized crime cases. RICO also contains two civil remedies. One empowers RICO victims to sue their victimizers for three times the damages. The second authorizes the United States Attorney General to seek and the federal courts to grant injunctions and other equitable relief to prevent defendants from committing future RICO violations. Beginning in the late 1980s, this remedy became the preferred method for taking down labor racketeering because it enabled the Department of Justice to obtain injunctions and consent decrees providing for court monitoring and reform of racketeering-ridden unions. It took decades for prosecutors to grasp RICO's potential as a powerful anti-organized crime weapon. After 1982, the year federal prosecutors filed the IBT New Jersey Local 560 case, the government's most direct attack on labor racketeering utilizing the RICO civil provisions, section 1964A, and 1964B that authorizes the United States Attorney General or her or his designee to seek injunctive and other equitable relief to restrain further violations of RICO. Section 1964A states, the district courts of the United States shall have jurisdiction to prevent and restrain violations of section 1962 of this chapter by issuing appropriate orders, including but not limited to ordering any person divest himself 
of any interest, direct or indirect, in any enterprise, imposing reasonable restrictions on the future activities or investments of any person, including but not limited to prohibiting any person from engaging in the same type of endeavor as the enterprise engaged in, the activities of which affect interstate or foreign commerce, or ordering dissolution or reorganization of any enterprise, making due provisions for the rights of innocent persons. Civil RICO is well-suited systemic organizational criminality that cannot be eradicated by one shot or even a series of criminal prosecutions. The injunctive remedy allows the government and the federal courts to implement and enforce a long-term strategy of organizational reform against a racketeer-ridden union. A civil RICO labor racketeering complaint essentially requires the same proof as a criminal RICO case. In their civil RICO labor racketeering suits, the Department of Justice attorneys always name union officials as defendants. With no history of convictions, the government attorneys need to prove that union defendants themselves violated RICO section 1962B by aiding and abetting the organized crime defendants in their acquisition of an interest in the union or that they violated RICO 1962C by conducting or aiding and abetting others in conducting the union's affairs through a pattern of racketeering activity, including such RICO predicate offenses as extortion of employers or union members, murder, assault, or threatening union dissidents, or defrauding the union's benefit funds. Remarkably, the Department of Justice lawyers have never lost a civil RICO labor racketeering case and only two of the 20 civil RICO suits went to trial. At first look, it would seem reasonable to have a RICO trustee be full-time as are most union officials. This would not work as the attorney would have to take a leave of absence from his law firm, likely a cut in pay and would be unaffordable. The power and authority of a trustee comes from the consent decree and varies. Some have the same as the executive board. Some get tied up in the day-to-day -day running of the local and spend little to no time on reform. A trustee can hire an experienced union officer to run the day-to-day -day business while he or she focuses on investigations, elections, and reform. He or she has the right to look at the books and even deny payment on inappropriate expenditures. The trustee has the same disciplinary ability as the executive board and most assent decrees prohibit officers and often members from associating with any person involved with Cosa Nostra. Even to expelling any officers and members, the trustee can hire union staff, including business agents. The trustee has the authority to conduct and monitor elections. Some locals may have never had a fair election in years. Let's look at IBT Local 560, which in 1982 was a sent decree placed in trusteeship. 
a local with about 10,000 members who drove trucks for large national companies to small ones with three to four drivers working. Worked in warehouses, road constructions, and laundries. Anthony Tony Provenzano and his two brothers, Nunzio and Salvatore, dominated Local 560 for decades. Tony joined the union in the late 1940s and was a business agent from 1948 to 1958 when he became president. His rise in the union was at the same time as his rise in the Genovese crime family, which he became a main member of. Tony enlisted Harold Konigsberg, Salvatore Briguglio, and others to kill Anthony Castigliato, local 560 secretary and treasurer in 1961. Tony believed he had informed authorities about Tony's extortion of a trucking company. Law enforcement also suspected Tony had ordered the 1963 murder of Walter Glocker, another local 560 dissident. In 1966, Tony was sent to prison for extorting labor peace payoffs from a trucking company. His brother, Salvatore, ran the union while Tony was in prison. Tony did his time in the same prison that Hoffa was at at the same time. The two had a fallout and may account for the suspicion that Tony was involved in Hoppe's murder. Tony was indicted in 1975 for conspiracy to violate the federal anti-kickback statute. Tony had acted as a broker between the Welfare and Pension Fund trustee and borrowers who had organized crime ties. The trustee wanted a kickback for approving the loan, but the borrowers balked at, as others wanted payoffs. Tony smoothed it all out and brokered the deal. He was found guilty and received a prison sentence of four years. In 1978, Tony was sentenced to life for his part in the murder of local 560 member Anthony Castiglioto 17 years earlier. The leadership of local 560 decided to pay him a pension for life and elected his daughter Josephine, secretary slash treasurer. At a 1979 federal trial, Tony and his henchmen, Stephen Andretta, Thomas Andretta, and Gabriel Briguglio, were found guilty of violating RICO based on their labor peace extortion. Tony and Thomas were sentenced to 20 years, while Briguglio and Stephen received 10 and 7 years. In 1980, Tony's brothers, Nuncio and Salvatore, with Michael Scaria and Irving Cotter, were indicted for a nine-year, 1971 through 1980, extortion conspiracy to extort money from four trucking companies. Nuncio and Cotter were sentenced to 10 and 7 years. Salvatore and Scara were acquitted. Tony designated Scara to succeed him as Local 560's top official. Gabriel Briguglio was murdered while awaiting trial for the Castellito murder. Tony died in federal prison in 1988. The New Jersey United States Attorney's Office Federal Organized Crime 
strike force and the Department of Justice filed a civil RICO complaint in 1982 against 12 individuals, Local 560, and its pension and welfare funds and severance pay plan. The remedies the government sought to prohibit Tony Provenzana and Nuncio Provenzana, Thomas and Stephen Andrade, and Gabriel Bugoglio from having contact with any officer or employee of Local 560 or any other labor organization or union employee benefit plan to remove the executive board which comprised Salvatore Provenzio, Joseph Sheridan, Josephine Provenzano, J.W. Dildine, Stanley Jerenko, Thomas Reynolds Sr., Dunnanzio's brother-in-law, and Michael Scarra, and the appointment of a trustee to run and monitor Local 560 until pre-elections could be conducted. It alleged two district RICO violations. One, that the individual Provenzano group defendants assisted and abetted by past and present lists present IBT Local 560 executive board members violating RICO's 1962B by illegally acquiring and maintaining control of Local 560 through a pattern of racketeering activities and two, that the Provenzano group violated RICO 1962C by conducting Local 560's affairs through a pattern of racketeering activity. The first RICO charge alleged that Provenzano Group and the Executive Board had violated the Hobbs Act by using actual and threatened force, violence, and fear of physical and economic injury in order to create a climate of intimidation which induced members to consent to the surrender of certain valuable property in the form of their union rights. The complaint cited the union defendants' extensive association with the Genovese crime family members 28 specific crimes, defendants' failure to take any action to reduce members' fears and perceptions, thus deprived the union members of their Lundrum Griffin rights. The second RICO charge accused the defendants of conducting the affairs of the RICO Enterprise, Local 560, through a pattern of racketeering activity, namely the following offenses. 1. The extortion of $17,100 from Dorn Transport Company in return for labor peace. 2. The wrongful conversion of $223,785 of local 560 funds by Anthony Provenzano, who was aided and abetted by past and present members of the Executive Board. 3. The Provenzano Group's wrongful receipt of payments from InterOcean Services and DJEB leasing in return for labor peace. 4. The unlawful receipt by Anthony Provenzano of Florida real estate from Thomas Romano in return for making loans available to Romano from Local 560's benefit funds. And 5. Nunzio Provenzano wrongful receipt of labor peace payoffs from Pacific Intermounting Express Company Mason and Dixon Lines Incorporated, TIME Incorporated, and Helms Express. They were also charged with conspiracy to violate RICO. 
Prior to trial, the government entered into consent agreements with several of the organized crime defendants, including Tony Provenzana, Nuncio Provenzana, and Thomas Andretta, all whom were in prison at the time. These defendants agreed that they would never serve as union officials nor associate with any enterprise that seeks to control or influence the affairs of a labor organization. The trial against the rest took 51 days of actual trial time from January 25, 1983 to May 17, 1983. District Court Judge Harold Ackerman wrote in his opinion, as described by Salvatore Sino, the Provenzana group began its activities as a wholly illicit and criminal enterprise in which each associate accepted orders and assignments from Tony Provenzana and each was prepared to collaborate with other associates in carrying out assignments. The judge reviewed the history of Local 560, stating the board's failure to take any action against racketeering that the Provenzano group had violated the members. London Griffin writes, well, the executive board had done nothing to devise or implement measures reasonably calculated to prevent and detect potential labor peace abuses. He also found that a significant number of local 560 members are in fear of the Provenzano group, that they feared for their jobs and their physical safety and that through this fear, the members were induced by the Provenzano group to part with their LMRDA created union democracy rights. Judge Ackerman felt that the members of Local 560 and the local trucking industry would continue to suffer so long as it remained a captive union and that more criminal prosecutions would not break the Provenzano group. Therefore, it barred the imprisoned Provenzano group members from any future deals with Local 560 and to remove the executive board members from office. Only through the imposition of a trusteeship for a curative period of sufficient length can the pattern of abuse be broken and future violations prevented. He held that the trusteeship would last until the union conducted a democratic election. The trusteeship started in June 1986, after the defendant's appeals had been exhausted. He appointed Joel R. Jacobson as the trustee. Jacobson identified three problems of Local 560's operating as a proper union. One, lack of rank and file solidarity. Two, the disarray of pension and welfare funds and severance pay plan records, and three, lack of training programs for union officials. Jacobson did not remove the stewards appointed by the Provenzano group. The judge Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.
listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. After World War II, unions pushed negotiations to include employer-funded pension and welfare funds, which both management and labor found beneficial as they are not taxable to employees while being a tax deduction for employers. Employers agreed to contribute a certain amount of money on behalf of their workers to be used for the benefit of their workers to fund union members' pensions medical and dental care, and legal services. Soon such funds accumulate hundreds of millions of dollars. This caused labor racketeers to see them as targets for embezzlement, fraudulent loans, kickbacks, and other manipulation. Senator Paul Douglas was the chairman of the Senate Committee on Labor in the mid-1950s. They uncovered widespread corruption fraud, and abuse, especially in the Teamster Central State Pension and Welfare Fund. In 1959, Congress passed the Welfare and Pension Plan Disclosure Act, also known as WPPDA, which required pensions and welfare plans to report certain fund information to the Department of Labor. In 1962, Congress strengthened the WPPDA by adding criminal charges to punish fund administrators, and trustees who took kickbacks from vendors of goods and services. In 1974, Congress passed the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, also known as ERISA, E-R-I-S-A, to fight continuing mob exploitation of union benefit funds. ERISA's criminal provision dealt with, one, theft or embezzlement from employee benefit plans, Two, false statements or concealment of facts in relationship to documents required by ERISA. Three, offers, acceptances, or solicitations to influence operations of employee benefit funds, providing federal prosecutors with a way to charge labor racketeers with criminal offenses. In 1959, Congress passed the Labor Management Reporting Act, LMRDA, also known as the Lundrum Griffin Act. The law bans persons with criminal records from holding union office. It also gave union members basic democratic rights within their labor organizations. Union officers stand in the role of fiduciaries, required unions to file various financial and organizational reports with the Department of Labor. The enforcement 
is more civil rather than criminal, with the Department of Labor delegated enforcement to the Office of Labor Management Standards, also known as OLMS. OLMS can investigate and take enforcement actions on its own. Aggrieved union members can bring their complaints to OLMS or, in some cases, to the National Labor Relations Board or directly to a federal court. The Act provides for a few criminal charges, including wide-ranging prohibition on the use of violence to deny or interfere with the democratic rights the law guarantees, embezzling from a labor union, making loans to union officers, or paying fines for union officers, falsifying and filing union reports with the Department of Labor. It was argued that federal law enforcement agencies and courts did not have adequate powers to defeat organized crime, so Congress passed the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, RICO, which made it a federal crime to use dirty money to acquire an interest in or to seize an interest in or to conduct the affairs of an enterprise, including labor unions, by means of a pattern of racketeering activity. RICO crime is punishable by up to a 20-year prison sentence plus an additional 20 years for conspiracy to violate RICO. In addition, a defendant can also be convicted and sentenced for the predicate offenses that establishes a pattern of racketeering activity. RICO was not used much in the first decade of its existence because it was complex and new, but by the late 1970s it had become the statute of choice in organized crime cases. RICO also contains two civil remedies one empowers RICO victims to sue their victimizers for three times the damages. The second authorizes the United States Attorney General to seek and the federal courts to grant injunctions and other equitable relief to prevent defendants from committing future RICO violations. Beginning in the late 1980s, this remedy became the preferred method for taking down labor racketeering because it enabled the Department of Justice to obtain injunctions and consent decrees providing for court monitoring and reform of racketeering-ridden unions. It took decades for prosecutors to grasp RICO's potential as a powerful anti-organized crime weapon. After 1982, the year federal prosecutors filed the IBT New Jersey Local 560 case, the government's must direct attack on labor racketeering utilizing the RICO civil provisions section 1964A and 1964B that authorizes the United States Attorney General or her or his designee to seek injunctive and other equitable relief to restrain further violations of RICO. Section 1964A states, The District Courts of the United States shall have jurisdiction to prevent and restrain violations of Section 1962 of this chapter by issuing appropriate orders, including but not limited to ordering any person divest himself 
of any interest, direct or indirect, in any enterprise, imposing reasonable restrictions on the future activities or investments of any person, including but not limited to prohibiting any person from engaging in the same type of endeavor as the enterprise engaged in, the activities of which affect interstate or foreign commerce, or ordering dissolution or reorganization of any enterprise, making due provisions for the rights of innocent persons. Civil RICO is well-suited systemic organizational criminality that cannot be eradicated by one shot or even a series of criminal prosecutions. The injunctive remedy allows the government and the federal courts to implement and enforce a long-term strategy of organizational reform against a racketeer-ridden union. A civil RICO labor racketeering complaint essentially requires the same proof as a criminal RICO case. In their civil RICO labor racketeering suits, the Department of Justice attorneys always name union officials as defendants. With no history of convictions, the government attorneys need to prove that union defendants themselves violated RICO. Section 1962B by aiding and abetting the organized crime defendants in their acquisition of an interest in the union or that they violated RICO 1962C by conducting or aiding and abetting others in conducting the union's affairs through a pattern of racketeering activity, including such RICO predicate offenses as extortion of employers or union members, murder, assault, or threatening union dissidents, or defrauding the union's benefit funds. Remarkably, the Department of Justice lawyers have never lost a civil RICO labor racketeering case, and only two of the 20 civil RICO suits went to trial. At first look, it would seem reasonable to have a RICO trustee be full-time as are most union officials. This would not work as the attorney would have to take a leave of absence from his law firm, likely a cut in pay, and would be unaffordable. The power and authority of a trustee comes from the consent decree and varies. Some have the same as the executive board. Some get tied up in the day-to-day running of the local and spend little to no time on reform. A trustee can hire an experienced union officer to run the day-to-day business while he or she focuses on investigations, elections, and reform. He or she has the right to look at the books and even deny payment on inappropriate expenditures. The trustee has the same disciplinary ability as the executive board and most assent decrees prohibit officers and often members from associating with any person involved with Cosa Nostra. Even to expelling any officers and members, the trustee can hire union staff, including business agents. The trustee has the authority to conduct and monitor elections. Some locals may have never had a fair election in years. Let's look at IBT Local 560, which in 1982 was a cent decree placed in trusteeship. 
a local with about 10,000 members who drove trucks for large national companies to small ones with three to four drivers working. Worked in warehouses, road constructions, and laundries. Anthony Tony Provenzano and his two brothers, Nunzio and Salvatore, dominated Local 560 for decades. Tony joined the union in the late 1940s and was a business agent from 1948 to 1958 when he became president. His rise in the union was at the same time as his rise in the Genovese crime family, which he became a main member of. Tony enlisted Harold Konigsberg, Salvatore Briguglio, and others to kill Anthony Castigliato, local 560 secretary and treasurer in 1961. Tony believed he had informed authorities about Tony's extortion of a trucking company. Law enforcement also suspected Tony had ordered the 1963 murder of Walter Glocker, another local 560 dissident. In 1966, Tony was sent to prison for extorting labor peace payoffs from a trucking company. His brother, Salvatore, ran the union while Tony was in prison. Tony did his time in the same prison that Hoffa was at at the same time. The two had a fallout and may account for the suspicion that Tony was involved in Hoffa's murder. Tony was indicted in 1975 for conspiracy to violate the federal anti-kickback statute. Tony had acted as a broker between the Welfare and Pension Fund trustee and borrowers who had organized crime ties. The trustee wanted a kickback for approving the loan, but the borrowers balked at, as others wanted payoffs. Tony smoothed it all out and brokered the deal. He was found guilty and received a prison sentence of four years. In 1978, Tony was sentenced to life for his part in the murder of local 560 member Anthony Castiglioto 17 years earlier. The leadership of Local 560 decided to pay him a pension for life and elected his daughter, Josephine, secretary-slash-treasurer. At a 1979 federal trial, Tony and his henchmen, Stephen Andretta, Thomas Andretta, and Gabriel Briguglio, were found guilty of violating RICO based on their labor peace extortion. Tony and Thomas were sentenced to 20 years, while Baguglio and Stephen received 10 and 7 years. In 1980, Tony's brothers, Nuncio and Salvatore, with Michael Scaria and Irving Cotter, were indicted for a 9-year, 1971-1980 through 1980 extortion conspiracy to extort money from four trucking companies. Nuncio and Cutler were sentenced to 10 and 7 years. Salvador and Scara were acquitted. Tony designated Scara to succeed him as Local 560's top official. Gabriel Briguglio was murdered while awaiting trial for the Castellito murder. Tony died in federal prison in 1988. The New Jersey United States Attorney's Office Federal Organized Crime 
strike force and the Department of Justice filed a civil RICO complaint in 1982 against 12 individuals, Local 560, and its pension and welfare funds and severance pay plan. The remedies the government sought to prohibit Tony Provenzana and Nuncio Provenzana, Thomas and Stephen Andrade, and Gabriel Bruguglio from having contact with any officer or employee of Local 560 or any other labor organization or union employee benefit plan. To remove the executive board, which comprised Salvatore Provenzio, Joseph Sheridan, Josephine Provenzano, J.W. Dildine, Stanley Jerenko, Thomas Reynolds Sr., Donizio's brother-in-law, and Michael Scarra, and the appointment of a trustee to run and monitor Local 560 until pre-elections could be conducted. It alleged two district RICO violations. One, that the individual Provenzano group defendants assisted and abetted by past and present lists present IBT Local 560 executive board members violating RICO's 1962B by illegally acquiring and maintaining control of Local 560 through a pattern of racketeering activities, and two, that the Provenzano group violated RICO 1962C by conducting Local 560's affairs through a pattern of racketeering activity. The first RICO charge alleged that Provenzano Group and the Executive Board had violated the Hobbs Act by using actual and threatened force, violence, and fear of physical and economic injury in order to create a climate of intimidation which induced members to consent to the surrender of certain valuable property in the form of their union rights. The complaint cited the union defendants' extensive association with the Genovese crime family members 28 specific crimes, defendants' failure to take any action to reduce members' fears and perceptions, thus deprived the union members of their Lundrum Griffin rights. The second RICO charge accused the defendants of conducting the affairs of the RICO Enterprise, Local 560, through a pattern of racketeering activity, namely the following offenses. 1. The extortion of $17,100 from Dorn Transport Company in return for labor peace. Two, the wrongful conversion of $223,785 of local 560 funds by Anthony Provenzano, who was aided and abetted by past and present members of the executive board. Three, the Provenzano Group's wrongful receipt of payments from InterOcean Services and DJEB leasing in return for labor peace. 4. The unlawful receipt by Anthony Provenzano of Florida real estate from Thomas Romano in return for making loans available to Romano from Local 560's benefit funds. And 5. Nunzio Provenzano wrongful receipt of labor peace payoffs from Pacific Intermounting Express Company Mason and Dixon Lines Incorporated, TIME Incorporated, and Helms Express. They were also charged with conspiracy to violate RICO. 
Prior to trial, the government entered into consent agreements with several of the organized crime defendants, including Tony Provenzana, Nuncio Provenzana, and Thomas Andretta, all whom were in prison at the time. These defendants agreed that they would never serve as union officials nor associate with any enterprise that seeks to control or influence the affairs of a labor organization. The trial against the rest took 51 days of actual trial time from January 25, 1983 to May 17, 1983. District Court Judge Harold Ackerman wrote in his opinion, as described by Salvatore Sino, the Provenzana group began its activities as a wholly illicit and criminal enterprise in which each associate accepted orders and assignments from Tony Provenzana, and each was prepared to collaborate with other associates in carrying out assignments. The judge reviewed the history of Local 560, stating the board's failure to take any action against racketeering that the Provenzano group had violated the members. London Griffin writes, well, the executive board had done nothing to devise or implement measures reasonably calculated to prevent and detect potential labor peace abuses. He also found that a significant number of local 560 members are in fear of the Probanzano group, that they feared for their jobs and their physical safety, and that through this fear, the members were induced by the Provenzano group to part with their LMRDA created union democracy rights. Judge Ackerman felt that the members of Local 560 and the local trucking industry would continue to suffer so long as it remained a captive union and that more criminal prosecutions would not break the Provenzano group. Therefore, it barred the imprisoned Provenzano group members from any future deals with Local 560 and to remove the executive board members from office. Only through the imposition of a trusteeship for a curative period of sufficient length can the pattern of abuse be broken and future violations prevented. He held that the trusteeship would last until the union conducted a democratic election. The trusteeship started in June 1986 after the defendant's appeals had been exhausted. He appointed Joel R. Jacobson as the trustee. Jacobson identified three problems of Local 560's operating as a proper union. One, lack of rank and file solidarity. Two, the disarray of pension and welfare funds and severance pay plan records. And three, lack of training programs for union officials. Jacobson did not remove the stewards appointed by the Provenzano group. The judge Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.
listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. After World War II, unions pushed negotiations to include employer-funded pension and welfare funds, which both management and labor found beneficial as they are not taxable to employees while being a tax deduction for employers. Employers agreed to contribute a certain amount of money on behalf of their workers to be used for the benefit of their workers to fund union members' pensions medical and dental care, and legal services. Soon such funds accumulate hundreds of millions of dollars. This caused labor racketeers to see them as targets for embezzlement, fraudulent loans, kickbacks, and other manipulation. Senator Paul Douglas was the chairman of the Senate Committee on Labor in the mid-1950s. They uncovered widespread corruption fraud, and abuse, especially in the Teamster Central State Pension and Welfare Fund. In 1959, Congress passed the Welfare and Pension Plan Disclosure Act, also known as WPPDA, which required pensions and welfare plans to report certain fund information to the Department of Labor. In 1962, Congress strengthened the WPPDA by adding criminal charges to punish fund administrators and trustees who took kickbacks from vendors of goods and services. In 1974, Congress passed the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, also known as ERISA, E-R-I-S-A, to fight continuing mob exploitation of union benefit funds. ERISA's criminal provision dealt with, one, theft or embezzlement from employee benefit plans, Two, false statements or concealment of facts in relationship to documents required by ERISA. Three, offers, acceptances, or solicitations to influence operations of employee benefit funds, providing federal prosecutors with a way to charge labor racketeers with criminal offenses. In 1959, Congress passed the Labor Management Reporting Act, LMRDA, also known as the Lundrum-Griffin Act. The law bans persons with criminal records from holding union office. It also gave union members basic democratic rights within their labor organizations. Union officers stand in the role of fiduciaries, required unions to file various financial and organizational reports with the Department of Labor. The enforcement 
is more civil rather than criminal, with the Department of Labor delegated enforcement to the Office of Labor Management Standards, also known as OLMS. OLMS can investigate and take enforcement actions on its own. Aggrieved union members can bring their complaints to OLMS or, in some cases, to the National Labor Relations Board or directly to a federal court. The Act provides for a few criminal charges, including wide-ranging prohibition on the use of violence to deny or interfere with the democratic rights the law guarantees, embezzling from a labor union, making loans to union officers, or paying fines for union officers, falsifying and filing union reports with the Department of Labor. It was argued that federal law enforcement agencies and courts did not have adequate powers to defeat organized crime, so Congress passed the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, RICO, which made it a federal crime to use dirty money to acquire an interest in or to seize an interest in or to conduct the affairs of an enterprise, including labor unions, by means of of a pattern of racketeering activity. RICO crime is punishable by up to a 20-year prison sentence plus an additional 20 years for conspiracy to violate RICO. In addition, a defendant can also be convicted and sentenced for the predicate offenses that establishes a pattern of racketeering activity. RICO was not used much in the first decade of its existence because it was complex and new. But by the late 1970s, it had become the statute of choice in organized crime cases. RICO also contains two civil remedies. One empowers RICO victims to sue their victimizers for three times the damages. The second authorizes the United States Attorney General to seek and the federal courts to grant injunctions and other equitable relief to prevent defendants from committing future RICO violations. Beginning in the late 1980s, this remedy became the preferred method for taking down labor racketeering because it enabled the Department of Justice to obtain injunctions and consent decrees providing for court monitoring and reform of racketeering-ridden unions. It took decades for prosecutors to grasp RICO's potential as a powerful anti-organized crime weapon. After 1982, the year federal prosecutors filed the IBT New Jersey Local 560 case, the government's most direct attack on labor racketeering utilizing the RICO civil provisions, Section 1964A and 1964B that authorizes the United States Attorney General or her or his designee to seek injunctive and other equitable relief to restrain further violations of RICO. Section 1964A states, the district courts of the United States shall have jurisdiction to prevent and restrain violations of Section 1962 of this chapter by issuing appropriate orders, including but not limited to ordering any person divest himself 
of any interest, direct or indirect, in any enterprise, imposing reasonable restrictions on the future activities or investments of any person, including but not limited to prohibiting any person from engaging in the same type of endeavor as the enterprise engaged in, the activities of which affect interstate or foreign commerce, or ordering dissolution or reorganization of any enterprise, making due provisions for the rights of innocent persons. Civil RICO is well-suited systemic organizational criminality that cannot be eradicated by one shot or even a series of criminal prosecutions. The injunctive remedy allows the government and the federal courts to implement and enforce a long-term strategy of organizational reform against a racketeer-ridden union. A civil RICO labor racketeering complaint essentially requires the same proof as a criminal RICO case. In their civil RICO labor racketeering suits, the Department of Justice attorneys always name union officials as defendants. With no history of convictions, the government attorneys need to prove that union defendants themselves violated RICO. Section 1962B by aiding and abetting the organized crime defendants in their acquisition of an interest in the union or that they violated RICO 1962C by conducting or aiding and abetting others in conducting the union's affairs through a pattern of racketeering activity, including such RICO predicate offenses as extortion of employers or union members, murder, assault, or threatening union dissidents, or defrauding the union's benefit funds. Remarkably, the Department of Justice lawyers have never lost a civil RICO labor racketeering case, and only two of the 20 civil RICO suits went to trial. At first look, it would seem reasonable to have a RICO trustee be full-time as are most union officials. This would not work as the attorney would have to take a leave of absence from his law firm, likely a cut in pay, and would be unaffordable. The power and authority of a trustee comes from the consent decree and varies. Some have the same as the executive board. Some get tied up in the day-to-day running of the local and spend little to no time on reform. A trustee can hire an experienced union officer to run the day-to-day business while he or she focuses on investigations, elections, and reform. He or she has the right to look at the books and even deny payment on inappropriate expenditures. The trustee has the same disciplinary ability as the executive board and most assent decrees prohibit officers and often members from associating with any person involved with Cosa Nostra. Even to expelling any officers and members, the trustee can hire union staff, including business agents. The trustee has the authority to conduct and monitor elections. Some locals may have never had a fair election in years. Let's look at IBT Local 560, which in 1982 was a sent decree placed in trusteeship. 
a local with about 10,000 members who drove trucks for large national companies to small ones with three to four drivers working. Worked in warehouses, road constructions, and laundries. Anthony Tony Provenzano and his two brothers, Nunzio and Salvatore, dominated Local 560 for decades. Tony joined the union in the late 1940s and was a business agent from 1948 to 1958 when he became president. His rise in the union was at the same time as his rise in the Genovese crime family, which he became a main member of. Tony enlisted Harold Konigsberg, Salvatore Briguglio, and others to kill Anthony Castigliato, local 560 secretary and treasurer in 1961. Tony believed he had informed authorities about Tony's extortion of a trucking company. Law enforcement also suspected Tony had ordered the 1963 murder of Walter Glocker, another local 560 dissident. In 1966, Tony was sent to prison for extorting labor peace payoffs from a trucking company. His brother, Salvatore, ran the union while Tony was in prison. Tony did his time in the same prison that Hoffa was at at the same time. The two had a fallout and may account for the suspicion that Tony was involved in Hoppe's murder. Tony was indicted in 1975 for conspiracy to violate the federal anti-kickback statute. Tony had acted as a broker between the Welfare and Pension Fund trustee and borrowers who had organized crime ties. The trustee wanted a kickback for approving the loan, but the borrowers balked at, as others wanted payoffs. Tony smoothed it all out and brokered the deal. He was found guilty and received a prison sentence of four years. In 1978, Tony was sentenced to life for his part in the murder of local 560 member Anthony Castiglioto 17 years earlier. The leadership of local 560 decided to pay him a pension for life and elected his daughter Josephine, secretary slash treasurer. At a 1979 federal trial, Tony and his henchmen, Stephen Andretta, Thomas Andretta, and Gabriel Briguglio were found guilty of violating RICO based on their labor peace extortion. Tony and Thomas were sentenced to 20 years, well, Briguglio and Stephen received 10 and 7 years. In 1980, Tony's brothers, Nuncio and Salvatore, with Michael Scaria and Irving Cotter, were indicted for a nine-year, 1971 through 1980, extortion conspiracy to extort money from four trucking companies. Nuncio and Cotter were sentenced to 10 and 7 years. Salvatore and Scara were acquitted. Tony designated Scara to succeed him as Local 560's top official. Gabriel Briguglio was murdered while awaiting trial for the Castellito murder. Tony died in federal prison in 1988. The New Jersey United States Attorney's Office Federal Organized Crime 
strike force and the Department of Justice filed a civil RICO complaint in 1982 against 12 individuals, Local 560, and its pension and welfare funds and severance pay plan. The remedies the government sought to prohibit Tony Provenzana and Nuncio Provenzana, Thomas and Stephen Andrade, and Gabriel Bruguglio from having contact with any officer or employee of Local 560 or any other labor organization or union employee benefit plan to remove the executive board which comprised Salvatore Provenzio, Joseph Sheridan, Josephine Provenzano, J.W. Dildine, Stanley Jerenko, Thomas Reynolds Sr., Zio's brother-in-law, and Michael Scarra, and the appointment of a trustee to run and monitor Local 560 until pre-elections could be conducted. It alleged two district RICO violations, one, that the individual Provenzano group defendants assisted and abetted by past and present lists present IBT Local 560 executive board members violating RICO's 1962B by illegally acquiring and maintaining control of Local 560 through a pattern of racketeering activities, and two, that the Provenzano group violated RICO 1962C by conducting local 560's affairs through a pattern of racketeering activity. The first RICO charge alleged that Provenzano Group and the Executive Board had violated the Hobbs Act by using actual and threatened force, violence, and fear of physical and economic injury in order to create a climate of intimidation which induced members to consent to the surrender of certain valuable property in the form of their union rights. The complaint cited the union defendant's extensive association with the Genovese crime family members, 28 specific crimes, defendant's failure to take any action to reduce members' fears and perceptions, thus deprived the union members of their Lundrum Griffin rights. The second RICO charge accused the defendants of conducting the affairs of the RICO Enterprise, Local 560, through a pattern of racketeering activity, namely the following offenses. 1. The extortion of $17,100 from Dorn Transport Company in return for labor fees. 2. The wrongful conversion of $223,785 of Local 560's funds by Anthony Provenzano who was aided and abetted by past and present members of the executive board. 3. The Provenzano Group's wrongful receipt of payments from Interocean Services and DJEB leasing in return for labor peace. 4. The unlawful receipt by Anthony Provenzano of Florida real estate from Thomas Romano in return for making loans available to Romano from Local 560's benefit funds. And five, Nunzio Provenzano wrongful receipt of labor peace payoffs from Pacific Intermounting Express Company, Mason and Dixon Lines Incorporated, TIME Incorporated, and Helms Express. They were also charged with conspiracy to violate RICO. 
Prior to trial, the government entered into consent agreements with several of the organized crime defendants, including Tony Provenzana, Nuncio Provenzana, and Thomas Andretta, all whom were in prison at the time. These defendants agreed that they would never serve as union officials nor associate with any enterprise that seeks to control or influence the affairs of a labor organization. The trial against the rest took 51 days of actual trial time from January 25, 1983 to May 17, 1983. District Court Judge Harold Ackerman wrote in his opinion, as described by Salvatore Sino, the Provenzana group began its activities as a wholly illicit and criminal enterprise in which each associate accepted orders and assignments from Tony Provenzana and each was prepared to collaborate with other associates in carrying out assignments. The judge reviewed the history of Local 560, stating the board's failure to take any action against racketeering that the Provenzano group had violated the members. London Griffin writes, well, the executive board had done nothing to devise or implement measures reasonably calculated to prevent and detect potential labor peace abuses. He also found that a significant number of Local 560 members are in fear of the Provenzano group, that they feared for their jobs and their physical safety and that through this fear, the members were induced by the Provenzano group to part with their LMRDA created union democracy rights. Judge Ackerman felt that the members of Local 560 and the local trucking industry would continue to suffer so long as it remained a captive union, and that more criminal prosecutions would not break the Provenzano group. Therefore, it barred the imprisoned Provenzano group members from any future deals with Local 560 and to remove the executive board members from office. Only through the imposition of a trusteeship for a curative period of sufficient length can the pattern of abuse be broken and future violations prevented. He held that the trusteeship would last until the union conducted a democratic election. The trusteeship started in June 1986, after the defendant's appeals had been exhausted. He appointed Joel R. Jacobson as the trustee. Jacobson identified three problems of Local 560's operating as a proper union. One, lack of rank-and-file solidarity. Two, the disarray of pension and welfare funds and severance pay plan records, and three, lack of training programs for union officials. Jacobson did not remove the stewards appointed by the Provenzano group. The judge Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.
Hello, listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. After World War II, unions pushed negotiations to include employer-funded pension and welfare funds, which both management and labor found beneficial as they are not taxable to employees while being a tax deduction for employers. Employers agreed to contribute a certain amount of money on behalf of their workers to be used for the benefit of their workers to fund union members' pensions medical and dental care, and legal services. Soon such funds accumulate hundreds of millions of dollars. This caused labor racketeers to see them as targets for embezzlement, fraudulent loans, kickbacks, and other manipulation. Senator Paul Douglas was the chairman of the Senate Committee on Labor in the mid-1950s. They uncovered widespread corruption fraud, and abuse, especially in the Teamster Central State Pension and Welfare Fund. In 1959, Congress passed the Welfare and Pension Plan Disclosure Act, also known as WPPDA, which required pensions and welfare plans to report certain fund information to the Department of Labor. In 1962, Congress strengthened the WPPDA by adding criminal charges to punish fund administrators and trustees who took kickbacks from vendors of goods and services. In 1974, Congress passed the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, also known as ERISA, E-R-I-S-A, to fight continuing mob exploitation of union benefit funds. ERISA's criminal provision dealt with, one, theft or embezzlement from employee benefit plans, 2. False statements or concealment of facts in relationship to documents required by ERISA. 3. Offers, acceptances, or solicitations to influence operations of employee benefit funds. Providing federal prosecutors with a way to charge labor racketeers with criminal offenses. In 1959, Congress passed the Labor Management Reporting Act, LMRDA also known as the Lundrum-Griffin Act. The law bans persons with criminal records from holding union office. It also gave union members basic democratic rights within their labor organizations. Union officers stand in the role of fiduciaries, required unions to file various financial and organizational reports with the Department of Labor. The enforcement 
is more civil rather than criminal, with the Department of Labor delegated enforcement to the Office of Labor Management Standards, also known as OLMS. OLMS can investigate and take enforcement actions on its own. Aggrieved union members can bring their complaints to OLMS or, in some cases, to the National Labor Relations Board or directly to a federal court. The Act provides for a few criminal charges, including wide-ranging prohibition on the use of violence to deny or interfere with the democratic rights the law guarantees, embezzling from a labor union, making loans to union officers, or paying fines for union officers, falsifying and filing union reports with the Department of Labor. It was argued that federal law enforcement agencies and courts did not have adequate powers to defeat organized crime, so Congress passed the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, RICO, which made it a federal crime to use dirty money to acquire an interest in or to seize an interest in or to conduct the affairs of an enterprise, including labor unions, by means of a pattern of racketeering activity. RICO crime is punishable by up to a 20-year prison sentence plus an additional 20 years for conspiracy to violate RICO. In addition, a defendant can also be convicted and sentenced for the predicate offenses that establishes a pattern of racketeering activity. RICO was not used much in the first decade of its existence because it was complex and new, but by the late 1970s it had become the statute of choice in organized crime cases. RICO also contains two civil remedies one empowers RICO victims to sue their victimizers for three times the damages. The second authorizes the United States Attorney General to seek and the federal courts to grant injunctions and other equitable relief to prevent defendants from committing future RICO violations. Beginning in the late 1980s, this remedy became the preferred method for taking down labor racketeering because it enabled the Department of Justice to obtain injunctions and consent decrees providing for court monitoring and reform of racketeering-ridden unions. It took decades for prosecutors to grasp RICO's potential as a powerful anti-organized crime weapon. After 1982, the year federal prosecutors filed the IBT New Jersey Local 560 case, the government's most Direct attack on labor racketeering utilizing the RICO civil provisions, Section 1964A and 1964B, that authorizes the United States Attorney General or her or his designee to seek injunctive and other equitable relief to restrain further violations of RICO. Section 1964A states, The District Courts of the United States shall have jurisdiction to prevent and restrain violations of Section 1962 of this chapter by issuing appropriate orders, including but not limited to ordering any person divest himself 
of any interest, direct or indirect, in any enterprise, imposing reasonable restrictions on the future activities or investments of any person, including but not limited to prohibiting any person from engaging in the same type of endeavor as the enterprise engaged in, the activities of which affect interstate or foreign commerce, or ordering dissolution or reorganization of any enterprise, making due provisions for the rights of innocent persons. Civil RICO is well-suited systemic organizational criminality that cannot be eradicated by one shot or even a series of criminal prosecutions. The injunctive remedy allows the government and the federal courts to implement and enforce a long-term strategy of organizational reform against a racketeer-ridden union. A civil RICO labor racketeering complaint essentially requires the same proof as a criminal RICO case. In their civil RICO labor racketeering suits, the Department of Justice attorneys always name union officials as defendants. With no history of convictions, the government attorneys need to prove that union defendants themselves violated RICO section 1962B by aiding and abetting the organized crime defendants in their acquisition of an interest in the union or that they violated RICO 1962C by conducting or aiding and abetting others in conducting the union's affairs through a pattern of racketeering activity, including such RICO predicate offenses as extortion of employers or union members, murder, assault, or threatening union dissidents, or defrauding the union's benefit funds. Remarkably, the Department of Justice lawyers have never lost a civil RICO labor racketeering case and only two of the 20 civil RICO suits went to trial. At first look, it would seem reasonable to have a RICO trustee be full-time as are most union officials. This would not work as the attorney would have to take a leave of absence from his law firm, likely a cut in pay and would be unaffordable. The power and authority of a trustee comes from the consent decree and varies. Some have the same as the executive board. Some get tied up in the day-to-day running of the local and spend little to no time on reform. A trustee can hire an experienced union officer to run the day-to-day business while he or she focuses on investigations, elections, and reform. He or she has the right to look at the books and even deny payment on inappropriate expenditures. The trustee has the same disciplinary ability as the executive board and most assent decrees prohibit officers and often members from associating with any person involved with Cosa Nostra. Even to expelling any officers and members, the trustee can hire union staff, including business agents. The trustee has the authority to conduct and monitor elections. Some locals may have never had a fair election in years. Let's look at IBT Local 560, which in 1982 was a sent decree placed in trusteeship. 
a local with about 10,000 members who drove trucks for large national companies to small ones with three to four drivers working. Worked in warehouses, road constructions, and laundries. Anthony Tony Provenzano and his two brothers, Nunzio and Salvatore, dominated Local 560 for decades. Tony joined the union in the late 1940s and was a business agent from 1948 to 1958 when he became president. His rise in the union was at the same time as his rise in the Genovese crime family, which he became a main member of. Tony enlisted Harold Konigsberg, Salvatore Briguglio, and others to kill Anthony Castigliato, local 560 secretary and treasurer in 1961. Tony believed he had informed authorities about Tony's extortion of a trucking company. Law enforcement also suspected Tony had ordered the 1963 murder of Walter Glocker, another local 560 dissident. In 1966, Tony was sent to prison for extorting labor peace payoffs from a trucking company. His brother, Salvatore, ran the union while Tony was in prison. Tony did his time in the same prison that Hoffa was at, at the same time. The two had a fallout and may account for the suspicion that Tony was involved in Hoffa's murder. Tony was indicted in 1975 for conspiracy to violate the federal anti-kickback statute. Tony had acted as a broker between the Welfare and Pension Fund trustee and borrowers who had organized crime ties. The trustee wanted a kickback for approving the loan, but the borrowers balked at, as others wanted payoffs. Tony smoothed it all out and brokered the deal. He was found guilty and received a prison sentence of four years. In 1978, Tony was sentenced to life for his part in the murder of local 560 member Anthony Castiglioto 17 years earlier. The leadership of Local 560 decided to pay him a pension for life and elected his daughter, Josephine, secretary slash treasurer. At a 1979 federal trial, Tony and his henchmen, Stephen Andretta, Thomas Andretta, and Gabriel Briguglio, were found guilty of violating RICO based on their labor peace extortion. Tony and Thomas were sentenced to 20 years, while Baguglio and Stephen received 10 and 7 years. In 1980, Tony's brothers, Nuncio and Salvatore, with Michael Scaria and Irving Cotter, were indicted for a 9-year, 1971-1980 through 1980 extortion conspiracy to extort money from four trucking companies. Nuncio and Cutler were sentenced to 10 and 7 years. Salvador and Scara were acquitted. Tony designated Scara to succeed him as Local 560's top official. Gabriel Briguglio was murdered while awaiting trial for the Castellito murder. Tony died in federal prison in 1988. The New Jersey United States Attorney's Office Federal Organized Crime 
strike force and the Department of Justice filed a civil RICO complaint in 1982 against 12 individuals, Local 560, and its pension and welfare funds and severance pay plan. The remedies the government sought to prohibit Tony Provenzana and Nuncio Provenzana, Thomas and Stephen Andrade, and Gabriel Bruguglio from having contact with any officer or employee of Local 560 or any other labor organization or union employee benefit plan to remove the executive board which comprised Salvatore Provenzio, Joseph Sheridan, Josephine Provenzano, J.W. Dildine, Stanley Jerenko, Thomas Reynolds Sr., Nunzio's brother-in-law, and Michael Scarra, and the appointment of a trustee to run and monitor Local 560 until pre-elections could be conducted. It alleged two district RICO violations. One, that the individual Provenzano group defendants assisted and abetted by past and present lists present IBT Local 560 executive board members violating RICO's 1962B by illegally acquiring and maintaining control of Local 560 through a pattern of racketeering activities and two, that the Provenzano group violated RICO 1962C by conducting Local 560's affairs through a pattern of racketeering activity. The first RICO charge alleged that Provenzano Group and the Executive Board had violated the Hobbs Act by using actual and threatened force, violence, and fear of physical and economic injury in order to create a climate of intimidation which induced members to consent to the surrender of certain valuable property in the form of their union rights. The complaint cited the union defendants' extensive association with the Genovese crime family members 28 specific crimes, defendants' failure to take any action to reduce members' fears and perceptions, thus deprived the union members of their Lundrum Griffin rights. The second RICO charge accused the defendants of conducting the affairs of the RICO Enterprise, Local 560, through a pattern of racketeering activity, namely the following offenses. 1. The extortion of $17,100 from Dorn Transport Company in return for labor peace. 2. The wrongful conversion of $223,785 of local 560 funds by Anthony Provenzano, who was aided and abetted by past and present members of the executive board. 3. The Provenzano Group's wrongful receipt of payments from InterOcean Services and DJEB leasing in return for labor peace. 4. The unlawful receipt by Anthony Provenzano of Florida real estate from Thomas Romano in return for making loans available to Romano from Local 560's benefit funds. And 5. Nunzio Provenzano wrongful receipt of labor peace payoffs from Pacific Intermounting Express Company Mason and Dixon Lines Incorporated, TIME Incorporated, and Helms Express. They were also charged with conspiracy to violate RICO. 
Prior to trial, the government entered into consent agreements with several of the organized crime defendants, including Tony Provenzana, Nuncio Provenzana, and Thomas Andretta, all whom were in prison at the time. These defendants agreed that they would never serve as union officials nor associate with any enterprise that seeks to control or influence the affairs of a labor organization. The trial against the rest took 51 days of actual trial time from January 25, 1983 to May 17, 1983. District Court Judge Harold Ackerman wrote in his opinion, as described by Salvatore Sino, the Provenzana group began its activities as a wholly illicit and criminal enterprise in which each associate accepted orders and assignments from Tony Provenzana and each was prepared to collaborate with other associates in carrying out assignments. The judge reviewed the history of Local 560, stating the board's failure to take any action against racketeering that the Provenzano group had violated the members. London Griffin writes, well, the executive board had done nothing to devise or implement measures reasonably calculated to prevent and detect potential labor peace abuses. He also found that a significant number of local 560 members are in fear of the Probanzano group, that they feared for their jobs and their physical safety, and that through this fear, the members were induced by the Provenzano group to part with their LMRDA created union democracy rights. Judge Ackerman felt that the members of Local 560 and the local trucking industry would continue to suffer so long as it remained a captive union and that more criminal prosecutions would not break the Provenzano group. Therefore, it barred the imprisoned Provenzano group members from any future deals with Local 560 and to remove the executive board members from office. Only through the imposition of a trusteeship for a curative period of sufficient length can the pattern of abuse be broken and future violations prevented. He held that the trusteeship would last until the union conducted a democratic election. The trusteeship started in June 1986 after the defendant's appeals had been exhausted. He appointed Joel R. Jacobson as the trustee. Jacobson identified three problems of Local 560's operating as a proper union. One, lack of rank-and-file solidarity. Two, the disarray of pension and welfare funds and severance pay plan records. And three, lack of training programs for union officials. Jacobson did not remove the stewards appointed by the Provenzano group. The judge Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.
This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. After World War II, unions pushed negotiations to include employer-funded pension and welfare funds, which both management and labor found beneficial as they are not taxable to employees while being a tax deduction for employers. Employers agreed to contribute a certain amount of money on behalf of their workers to be used for the benefit of their workers to fund union members' pensions medical and dental care, and legal services. Soon such funds accumulate hundreds of millions of dollars. This caused labor racketeers to see them as targets for embezzlement, fraudulent loans, kickbacks, and other manipulation. Senator Paul Douglas was the chairman of the Senate Committee on Labor in the mid-1950s. They uncovered widespread corruption fraud, and abuse, especially in the Teamster Central State Pension and Welfare Fund. In 1959, Congress passed the Welfare and Pension Plan Disclosure Act, also known as WPPDA, which required pensions and welfare plans to report certain fund information to the Department of Labor. In 1962, Congress strengthened the WPPDA by adding criminal charges to punish fund administrators, and trustees who took kickbacks from vendors of goods and services. In 1974, Congress passed the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, also known as ERISA, E-R-I-S-A, to fight continuing mob exploitation of union benefit funds. ERISA's criminal provision dealt with, one, theft or embezzlement from employee benefit plans, 2. False statements or concealment of facts in relationship to documents required by ERISA. 3. Offers, acceptances, or solicitations to influence operations of employee benefit funds, providing federal prosecutors with a way to charge labor racketeers with criminal offenses. In 1959, Congress passed the Labor Management Reporting Act, LMRDA, also known as the Lundrum Griffin Act. The law bans persons with criminal records from holding union office. It also gave union members basic democratic rights within their labor organizations. Union officers stand in the role of fiduciaries, required unions to file various financial and organizational reports with the Department of Labor. The enforcement 
is more civil rather than criminal, with the Department of Labor delegated enforcement to the Office of Labor Management Standards, also known as OLMS. OLMS can investigate and take enforcement actions on its own. Aggrieved union members can bring their complaints to OLMS or, in some cases, to the National Labor Relations Board or directly to a federal court. The Act provides for a few criminal charges, including wide-ranging prohibition on the use of violence to deny or interfere with the democratic rights the law guarantees, embezzling from a labor union, making loans to union officers, or paying fines for union officers, falsifying and filing union reports with the Department of Labor. It was argued that federal law enforcement agencies and courts did not have adequate powers to defeat organized crime, so Congress passed the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, RICO, which made it a federal crime to use dirty money to acquire an interest in or to seize an interest in or to conduct the affairs of an enterprise, including labor unions, by means of of a pattern of racketeering activity. RICO crime is punishable by up to a 20-year prison sentence plus an additional 20 years for conspiracy to violate RICO. In addition, a defendant can also be convicted and sentenced for the predicate offenses that establishes a pattern of racketeering activity. RICO was not used much in the first decade of its existence because it was complex and new. But by the late 1970s, it had become the statute of choice in organized crime cases. RICO also contains two civil remedies. One empowers RICO victims to sue their victimizers for three times the damages. The second authorizes the United States Attorney General to seek and the federal courts to grant injunctions and other equitable relief to prevent defendants from committing future RICO violations. Beginning in the late 1980s, this remedy became the preferred method for taking down labor racketeering because it enabled the Department of Justice to obtain injunctions and consent decrees providing for court monitoring and reform of racketeering-ridden unions. It took decades for prosecutors to grasp RICO's potential as a powerful anti-organized crime weapon. After 1982, the year federal prosecutors filed the IBT New Jersey Local 560 case, the government's most direct attack on labor racketeering utilizing the RICO civil provisions, Section 1964A and 1964B that authorizes the United States Attorney General or her or his designee to seek injunctive and other equitable relief to restrain further violations of RICO. Section 1964A states, the district courts of the United States shall have jurisdiction to prevent and restrain violations of Section 1962 of this chapter by issuing appropriate orders, including but not limited to ordering any person divest himself 
of any interest, direct or indirect, in any enterprise, imposing reasonable restrictions on the future activities or investments of any person, including but not limited to prohibiting any person from engaging in the same type of endeavor as the enterprise engaged in, the activities of which affect interstate or foreign commerce, or ordering dissolution or reorganization of any enterprise, making due provisions for the rights of innocent persons. Civil RICO is well-suited systemic organizational criminality that cannot be eradicated by one shot or even a series of criminal prosecutions. The injunctive remedy allows the government and the federal courts to implement and enforce a long-term strategy of organizational reform against a racketeer-ridden union. A civil RICO labor racketeering complaint essentially requires the same proof as a criminal RICO case. In their civil RICO labor racketeering suits, the Department of Justice attorneys always name union officials as defendants. With no history of convictions, the government attorneys need to prove that union defendants themselves violated RICO Section 1962B by aiding and abetting the organized crime defendants in their acquisition of an interest in the union or that they violated RICO 1962C by conducting or aiding and abetting others in conducting the union's affairs through a pattern of racketeering activity, including such RICO predicate offenses as extortion of employers or union members, murder, assault, or threatening union dissidents, or defrauding the union's benefit funds. Remarkably, the Department of Justice lawyers have never lost a civil RICO labor racketeering case and only two of the 20 civil RICO suits went to trial. At first look, it would seem reasonable to have a RICO trustee be full-time as are most union officials. This would not work as the attorney would have to take a leave of absence from his law firm, likely a cut in pay and would be unaffordable. The power and authority of a trustee comes from the consent decree and varies. Some have the same as the executive board. Some get tied up in the day-to-day running of the local and spend little to no time on reform. A trustee can hire an experienced union officer to run the day-to-day business while he or she focuses on investigations, elections, and reform. He or she has the right to look at the books and even deny payment on inappropriate expenditures. The trustee has the same disciplinary ability as the executive board and most assent decrees prohibit officers and often members from associating with any person involved with Cosa Nostra. Even to expelling any officers and members, the trustee can hire union staff, including business agents. The trustee has the authority to conduct and monitor elections. Some locals may have never had a fair election in years. Let's look at IBT Local 560, which in 1982 was a sent decree placed in trusteeship. 
a local with about 10,000 members who drove trucks for large national companies to small ones with three to four drivers working. Worked in warehouses, road constructions, and laundries. Anthony Tony Provenzano and his two brothers, Nunzio and Salvatore, dominated Local 560 for decades. Tony joined the union in the late 1940s and was a business agent from 1948 to 1958 when he became president. His rise in the union was at the same time as his rise in the Genovese crime family, which he became a main member of. Tony enlisted Harold Konigsberg, Salvatore Briguglio, and others to kill Anthony Castigliato, local 560 secretary and treasurer in 1961. Tony believed he had informed authorities about Tony's extortion of a trucking company. Law enforcement also suspected Tony had ordered the 1963 murder of Walter Glocker, another local 560 dissident. In 1966, Tony was sent to prison for extorting labor peace payoffs from a trucking company. His brother, Salvatore, ran the union while Tony was in prison. Tony did his time in the same prison that Hoffa was at at the same time. The two had a fallout and may account for the suspicion that Tony was involved in Hoffa's murder. Tony was indicted in 1975 for conspiracy to violate the federal anti-kickback statute. Tony had acted as a broker between the Welfare and Pension Fund trustee and borrowers who had organized crime ties. The trustee wanted a kickback for approving the loan, but the borrowers balked at, as others wanted payoffs. Tony smoothed it all out and brokered the deal. He was found guilty and received a prison sentence of four years. In 1978, Tony was sentenced to life for his part in the murder of local 560 member Anthony Castiglioto 17 years earlier. The leadership of Local 560 decided to pay him a pension for life and elected his daughter, Josephine, secretary-slash-treasurer. At a 1979 federal trial, Tony and his henchmen, Stephen Andretta, Thomas Andretta, and Gabriel Briguglio, were found guilty of violating RICO based on their labor peace extortion. Tony and Thomas were sentenced to 20 years, while Baguglio and Stephen received 10 and 7 years. In 1980, Tony's brothers, Nuncio and Salvatore, with Michael Scaria and Irving Cotter, were indicted for a 9-year, 1971-1980 through 1980 extortion conspiracy to extort money from four trucking companies. Nuncio and Cutler were sentenced to 10 and 7 years. Salvador and Scara were acquitted. Tony designated Scara to succeed him as Local 560's top official. Gabriel Briguglio was murdered while awaiting trial for the Castellito murder. Tony died in federal prison in 1988. The New Jersey United States Attorney's Office Federal Organized Crime 
strike force and the Department of Justice filed a civil RICO complaint in 1982 against 12 individuals, Local 560, and its pension and welfare funds and severance pay plan. The remedies the government sought to prohibit Tony Provenzana and Nuncio Provenzana, Thomas and Stephen Andrade, and Gabriel Gugliel from having contact with any officer or employee of Local 560 or any other labor organization or union employee benefit plan to remove the executive board which comprised Salvatore Provenzio, Joseph Sheridan, Josephine Provenzano, J.W. Dildine, Stanley Jerenko, Thomas Reynolds Sr., Nunzio's brother-in-law, and Michael Scarra, and the appointment of a trustee to run and monitor Local 560 until free elections could be conducted. It alleged two district RICO violations, one, that the individual Provenzano group defendants assisted and abetted by past and present lists present IBT Local 560 executive board members violating RICO's 1962B by illegally acquiring and maintaining control of Local 560 through a pattern of racketeering activities, and two, that the Provenzano group violated RICO 1962C by conducting Local 560's affairs through a pattern of racketeering activity. The first RICO charge alleged that Provenzano Group and the Executive Board had violated the Hobbs Act by using actual and threatened force, violence, and fear of physical and economic injury in order to create a climate of intimidation which induced members to consent to the surrender of certain valuable property in the form of their union rights. The complaint cited the union defendants' extensive association with the Genovese crime family members 28 specific crimes, defendants' failure to take any action to reduce members' fears and perceptions, thus deprived the union members of their Lundrum Griffin rights. The second RICO charge accused the defendants of conducting the affairs of the RICO Enterprise, Local 560, through a pattern of racketeering activity, namely the following offenses. 1. The extortion of $17,100 from Dorn Transport Company in return for labor peace. Two, the wrongful conversion of $223,785 of local 560 funds by Anthony Provenzano, who was aided and abetted by past and present members of the executive board. Three, the Provenzano Group's wrongful receipt of payments from InterOcean Services and DJEB leasing in return for labor peace. 4. The unlawful receipt by Anthony Provenzano of Florida real estate from Thomas Romano in return for making loans available to Romano from Local 560's benefit funds. And 5. Nunzio Provenzano wrongful receipt of labor peace payoffs from Pacific Intermounting Express Company Mason and Dixon Lines Incorporated, TIME Incorporated, and Helms Express. They were also charged with conspiracy to violate RICO. 
Prior to trial, the government entered into consent agreements with several of the organized crime defendants, including Tony Provenzana, Nuncio Provenzana, and Thomas Andretta, all whom were in prison at the time. These defendants agreed that they would never serve as union officials nor associate with any enterprise that seeks to control or influence the affairs of a labor organization. The trial against the rest took 51 days of actual trial time from January 25, 1983 to May 17, 1983. District Court Judge Harold Ackerman wrote in his opinion, as described by Salvatore Sino, the Provenzana group began its activities as a wholly illicit and criminal enterprise in which each associate accepted orders and assignments from Tony Provenzana and each was prepared to collaborate with other associates in carrying out assignments. The judge reviewed the history of Local 560, stating the board's failure to take any action against racketeering that the Provenzano group had violated the members. London Griffin writes, well, the executive board had done nothing to devise or implement measures reasonably calculated to prevent and detect potential labor peace abuses. He also found that a significant number of local 560 members are in fear of the Probanzano group, that they feared for their jobs and their physical safety, and that through this fear, the members were induced by the Provenzano group to part with their LMRDA created union democracy rights. Judge Ackerman felt that the members of Local 560 and the local trucking industry would continue to suffer so long as it remained a captive union and that more criminal prosecutions would not break the Provenzano group. Therefore, it barred the imprisoned Provenzano group members from any future deals with Local 560 and to remove the executive board members from office. Only through the imposition of a trusteeship for a curative period of sufficient length can the pattern of abuse be broken and future violations prevented. He held that the trusteeship would last until the union conducted a democratic election. The trusteeship started in June 1986 after the defendant's appeals had been exhausted. He appointed Joel R. Jacobson as the trustee. Jacobson identified three problems of Local 560's operating as a proper union. One, lack of rank and file solidarity. Two, the disarray of pension and welfare funds and severance pay plan records. And three, lack of training programs for union officials. Jacobson did not remove the stewards appointed by the Provenzano group. The judge Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.